At the picnic, each one of us had our own agent flanking us, canvassing the gathering for any sign of threat, subtly intervening if a well-wisher got over-enthused and grabby. Thankfully, the girls seemed to see the agents less as guards and more as grown-up friends, new additions to the growing knot of friendly people with whom we traveled, distinguishable only by their earpieces and quiet vigilance. Sasha generally referred to them as the secret people. The girls made campaigning more relaxing, if only because they weren't much invested in the outcome. For both me and Barack, they were a relief to be around, a reminder that in the end, our family meant more than any tallying of supporters or bump in the polls. Neither daughter cared much about the hubbub surrounding their dad. They weren't focused on building a better democracy or getting to the White House. All they really wanted, really, really wanted, was a puppy. They loved playing tag or card games with campaign staff during the quieter moments and made a point of finding an ice cream shop in every new place we went. Everything else was just noise. To this day, Malia and I crack up about the fact that she'd been eight years old when Barack, clearly feeling some sense of responsibility, posed the question one night while he was tucking her into bed. How would you feel if Daddy ran for president, he'd ask. Do you think it's a good idea? Sure, Daddy, she replied, pecking him on the cheek. His decision to run would alter nearly everything about her life after that, but how was she to know? She just rolled over then and drifted off to sleep. That day in Butte, we visited the local mining museum, had a water pistol battle, and kicked a soccer ball around in the grass. Barack gave his stump speech and shook the usual number of hands, but he also got to anchor himself back inside the unit of us. Sasha and Malia climbed over him, giggling and regaling him with their thoughts. I saw the lightness in his smile, admiring him for his ability to block out the peripheral distractions and just be a dad when he had the chance. He chatted with Maya and Conrad and kept an arm hooked around my shoulder as we walked from place to place. We were never alone. We had staff around us, agents guarding us, members of the press waiting for interviews, onlookers snapping pictures from a distance. But this was now our normal. Over the course of the campaign, our days had become so programmed that we'd watched our privacy and autonomy slowly slip away, both Barack and I handing nearly every aspect of our lives over to a bunch of 20-somethings who were highly intelligent and capable but still couldn't know how painful it could feel to give up control over my own life. If I needed something at the store, I had to ask someone to get it for me. If I wanted to speak to Barack, I usually had to send a request through one of his young staffers. Events and activities I didn't know about would sometimes show up on my calendar. But slowly, as a matter of survival, we were learning to live our lives more publicly, accepting the reality for what it was. Before the afternoon ended in Butte, we gave a TV interview all four of us, me, Barack, and the girls, which was something we'd never done before. 
Usually, we insisted on keeping the press corps at a distance from our kids, limiting them to photos and then only at public campaign events. I'm not sure what prompted us to say yes this time. As I recall, the campaign staff thought it would be nice to give the public a closer glimpse of Barack as a parent, and in the moment, I saw no harm in this. He loved our children, after all. He loved all children. It was precisely why he'd make a great president. We sat down for about 15 minutes with Maria Menounos of Access Hollywood, the four of us speaking to her while sitting together on a park bench that had been draped with some sort of cloth to make it look more festive. Malia had her hair braided, and Sasha wore a red tank dress. As always, they were disarmingly cute. Manunos was gracious and kept the conversation light, as Malia, the family's junior professor, earnestly pondered every question. She said that her dad embarrassed her sometimes when he tried to shake hands with her friends, and also that he bothered all of us when he left his campaign luggage blocking the door at home. Sasha did her best to sit still and stay focused, interrupting the interview only once, turning to me to ask, Hey, when are we getting ice cream? Otherwise, she listened to her sister, interjecting periodically with whatever semi-relevant detail popped into her head. Daddy had an afro once, she squealed at one point toward the end, and we all started to laugh. Days later, the interview aired in four parts on ABC and was met with an enthused fervor, covered by other news outlets with cloying taglines like, Curtain rises on Obama's girls in TV interview, and the Obama's two little girls tell all. Suddenly, Malia's and Sasha's little kid comments were being picked up in newspapers around the world. Immediately, Barack and I regretted what we'd done. There was nothing salacious about the interview. There was no exploitative questions asked, no especially revealing detail offered. Still, we felt like we'd made a wrong choice, putting their voices into the public sphere long before they could really understand what any of it meant. Nothing in the video would hurt Sasha or Malia, but it was out in the world now and would live forever on the Internet. We'd taken two young girls who hadn't chosen this life, and without thinking it through, we fed them into the maw. By now, I knew something about the Maw. We lived with the gaze upon us. It added a strange energy to everything. I had Oprah Winfrey sending me encouraging texts. Stevie Wonder, my childhood idol, was showing up to play at campaign events, joking and calling me by my first name as if we'd known each other forever. The amount of attention was disorienting especially because I felt as if we hadn't really done much to deserve it. We were being lifted by the strength of the message Barack was putting forward, but also I knew by the promise and symbolism of the moment. If America elected its first black president, it would say something not just about Barack, but also about the country. For so many people and for so many reasons, this mattered a lot. Barack, of course, got the most of it. The public adulation as well as the scrutiny that rode inevitably on its back 
The more popular you became, the more haters you acquired. It seemed almost like an unwritten rule, especially in politics, where adversaries put money into opposition research, hiring investigators to crawl through every piece of a candidate's background, looking for anything resembling dirt. We're built differently, my husband and I, which is why one of us chose politics and the other did not. He was aware of rumors and misperceptions that got pumped like toxic vapor into the campaign, but rarely did any of it bother him. Barack had lived through other campaigns. He'd studied political history and girded himself with the context it provided. And in general, he's just not someone who's easily rattled or thrown off course by anything as abstract as doubt or hurt. I, on the other hand, was still learning about public life. I considered myself a confident, successful woman, but I was also the same kid who used to tell people she planned to be a pediatrician and devoted herself to setting perfect attendance records at school. In other words, I cared what people thought. I'd spent my young life seeking approval, dutifully collecting gold stars and avoiding messy social situations. Over time, I'd gotten better about not measuring my self-worth strictly in terms of standard, by-the-book achievement, but I did tend to believe that if I worked diligently and honestly, I'd avoid the bullies and always be seen as myself. This belief, though, was about to come undone. After Barack's victory in Iowa, my message on the campaign trail grew only more impassioned almost proportional to the size of the crowds that were turning out at rallies. I'd gone from meeting hundreds of people at a gathering to a thousand or more. I remember pulling up to an event in Delaware with Melissa and Katie and seeing a line of people five deep and stretching around the block, waiting to get inside an already jammed auditorium. It stunned me in the happiest of ways. I relayed this to every crowd. I was floored by what people were bringing to Barack's campaign in terms of enthusiasm and involvement. I was humbled by their investment, the work I saw everyday people doing to help get him elected. When it came to my stump speech, building on the theory of campaigning that had worked so well for me in Iowa, I developed a loose structure for it though I didn't use a teleprompter or worry if I went off on a slight tangent. My words weren't polished, and I'd never be as eloquent as my husband, but I spoke from the heart. I described how my initial doubts about the political process had slowly diminished week by week, replaced by something more encouraging and hopeful. So many of us, I was realizing, had the same struggles the same concerns for our kids and worries about the future. And so many believed, as I did, that Barack was the only candidate capable of delivering real change. Barack wanted to get American troops out of Iraq. He wanted to roll back the tax cuts George W. Bush had pushed through for the super wealthy. He wanted affordable health care for all Americans. It was an ambitious platform but every time I walked into an auditorium of revved-up supporters, 
it seemed as if maybe, as a nation, we were ready to look past our differences and make it happen. There was pride in those rooms, a united spirit that went well past the color of anyone's skin. The optimism was big, and it was energizing. I surfed it like a wave. Hope is making a comeback, I would declare at every stop. I'd been in Wisconsin one day in February when Katie got a call from someone on Barack's communications team saying that there seemed to be a problem. I'd evidently said something controversial in a speech I'd given at a theater in Milwaukee a few hours earlier. Katie was confused, as was I. What I'd said in Milwaukee was really no different from what I'd just finished saying to a crowd in Madison, which was no different from what I'd been saying to every crowd for months. There'd never been an issue before. Why would there be one now? Later that day, we saw the issue for ourselves. Someone had taken film from my roughly 40-minute talk and edited it down to a single 10-second clip, stripping away the context, putting the emphasis on a few words. There were clips suddenly circulating from both the Milwaukee and Madison speeches focused on the part where I talked about feeling encouraged. The fuller version of what I said that day went like this. What we've learned over this year is that hope is making a comeback. And let me tell you something. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. Not just because Barack has done well, but because I think people are hungry for change. I've been so desperate to see our country moving in that direction and just not feeling so alone in my frustration and disappointment. I've seen people who are hungry to be unified around some basic common issues, and it's made me so proud. I feel privileged to be a part of even witnessing this. But nearly all of that had been peeled back, including my references to hope and unity and how moved I was. The nuance was gone the gaze directed toward one thing. What was in the clips and now sliding into heavy rotation on conservative radio and TV talk shows, we were told, was this. For the first time in my adult lifetime, I'm really proud of my country. I didn't need to watch the news to know how it was being spun. She's not a patriot. She's always hated America. This is who she really is. The rest is just a show. Here was the first punch, and I'd seemingly brought it on myself. In trying to speak casually, I'd forgotten how weighted each little phrase could be. Unwittingly, I'd given the haters a 14-word feast. Just like in first grade, I hadn't seen it coming. I flew home to Chicago that night, feeling guilty and dispirited. I knew that Melissa and Katie were quietly tracking the negative news stories via BlackBerry, though they were careful not to share them with me, understanding it would only make things worse. The three of us had worked together for the better part of a year at this point, logging more miles than any of us could count, perpetually racing the clock so I could get back home to my kids at night. We'd trek through auditoriums all over the country, 
eat more fast food than we ever wanted to, and shown up for fancy fundraisers at homes so opulent we'd had to actively keep ourselves from gawking. While Barack and his campaign team traveled in chartered planes and cushy tour buses, we were still taking off our shoes in slow-moving airport security lines, sitting in coach on United and Southwest, relying on the goodwill of volunteers to shuttle us to and from events that were sometimes a hundred miles apart. I felt as if overall, we'd been doing a pretty excellent job. I'd seen Katie stand on a chair and shout marching orders to photographers twice her age and dress down reporters who asked out-of-line questions. I'd watch Melissa mastermind every detail of my schedule, expertly coordinating multiple campaign events in a day, pounding her Blackberry to squelch potential problems, while also making sure I never missed a school play, an old friend's birthday, or a chance to get myself to the gym. The two of them had given everything over to this effort, sacrificing their own personal lives so that I could try to preserve some semblance of mine. I sat under the dome light of the airplane, worried that I'd somehow blown it with those 14 stupid words. At home, after I'd put the girls to bed and sent my mom back to Euclid Avenue to get some rest, I called Barack on his cell. It was the eve of the Wisconsin primaries, and the polls were showing a tight race. Barack had a thin but growing lead when it came to delegates for the national convention. But Hillary had been running ads criticizing Barack on everything from his health care plan to his not agreeing to debate her more frequently. The stakes seemed high. Barack's campaign couldn't afford a letdown. I apologized for what was happening with my speech. I had no idea I was doing something wrong, I said. I've been saying the same thing for months. Barack was traveling that night between Wisconsin and Texas. I could almost hear him shrugging on the other end of the line. Look, it, it's because your crowds are so big, he said. You become a force in this campaign which means people are going to come after you a little. This is just the nature of things. As he did pretty much every time we spoke, he thanked me for the time I was putting in, adding that he was sorry I had to deal with any fallout at all. I love you, honey, he told me before hanging up. I know this stuff is rough, but it'll blow over. It always does. He was both right and wrong about this. On February 19, 2008, Barack won the Wisconsin primary by a good margin, which seemed to suggest I'd done him no damage there. That same day, Cindy McCain took a pot shot at me while speaking at a rally, saying, I am proud of my country. I don't know about you if you heard those words earlier. I am very proud of my country. CNN deemed us to be in a patriotism flap, and the bloggers did what bloggers do. But within about a week, it seemed that most of the commotion had died down. Barack and I both made comments to the press, clarifying that I felt a pride in seeing so many Americans making phone calls for the campaign, talking to their neighbors and gaining confidence about their power inside our democracy which to me did feel like a first. And then we moved on 
In my campaign speeches, I tried to be more careful about how the words came out of my mouth, but my message remained the same. I was still proud and still encouraged. Nothing there had changed. And yet a pernicious seed had been planted. A perception of me as disgruntled and vaguely hostile, lacking some expected level of grace. Whether it was originating from Barack's political opponents or elsewhere, we couldn't tell. But the rumors and slanted commentary almost always carried less than subtle messaging about race, meant to stir up the deepest and ugliest kind of fear within the voting public. Don't let black folks take over. They're not like you. Their vision is not yours. This wasn't helped by the fact that ABC News had combed through 29 hours of the Reverend Jeremiah Wright's sermons, splicing together a jarring highlight reel that showed the preacher careening through callous and inappropriate fits of rage and resentment at white America, as if white people were to blame for every woe. Barack and I were dismayed to see this, a reflection of the worst and most paranoid parts of the man who'd married us and baptized our children. Both of us had grown up with family members who viewed race through a lens of cranky mistrust. I'd experienced Dandy's simmering resentment over the decades he'd spent being passed by professionally because of his skin color, as well as Southside's worries that his grandkids weren't safe in white neighborhoods. Barack, meanwhile, had listened to Toot, his white grandmother, make offhanded ethnic generalizations and even confessed to her black grandson that she sometimes felt afraid when running into a black man on the street. We had lived for years with the narrow-mindedness of some of our elders, having accepted that no one is perfect, particularly those who'd come of age in a time of segregation. Perhaps this had caused us to overlook the more absurd parts of Reverend Wright's spitfire preaching, even when we hadn't been present for any of the sermons in question. Seeing an extreme version of his vitriol broadcast in the news, though, we were appalled. The whole affair was a reminder of how our country's distortions about race could be two-sided, that the suspicions and stereotyping ran both ways. Someone, meanwhile, had dug up my senior thesis from Princeton, written more than two decades earlier, a survey that looked at how African-American alumni felt about race and identity after being at Princeton. For reasons I'll never understand, the conservative media was treating my paper as if it were some secret black power manifesto a threat that had been unburied. It was as if at the age of 21, instead of trying to get an A in sociology and a spot at Harvard Law School, I'd been hatching a Nat Turner plan to overthrow the white majority and was now finally, through my husband, getting a chance to put it in motion. Is Michelle Obama responsible for the Jeremiah Wright fiasco? Was the subtitle of an online column written by the author Christopher Hitchens. He tore into the college-age me, suggesting that I'd been unduly influenced by black radical thinkers and, furthermore, was a crappy writer. To describe it as hard to read would be a mistake, he wrote. 
The thesis cannot be read at all in the strict sense of the verb. This is because it wasn't written in any known language. I was being painted not simply as an outsider, but as fully other, so foreign that even my language couldn't be recognized. It was a small minded and ludicrous insult, sure, but this mocking of my intellect, his marginalizing of my young self, carried with it a larger dismissiveness. Barack and I were now too well known to be rendered invisible. But if people saw us as alien and trespassing, then maybe our potency could be drained. The message seemed often to get telegraphed, if never said directly. These people don't belong. A photo of Barack wearing a turban and traditional Somali clothing that had been bestowed on him during an official visit he'd made to Kenya as a senator had shown up on the Drudge Report, reviving old theories that he was secretly Muslim. A few months later, the internet would burp up another anonymous and unfounded rumor, this one questioning Barack's citizenship, floating the idea that he'd been born not in Hawaii but in Kenya, which would make him ineligible to become president. As we carried on through the primaries in Ohio and Texas, in Vermont and Mississippi, I had continued to speak about optimism and unity, feeling the positivity of people at campaign events coalescing around the idea of change. All along, though, the unflattering counter-narrative about me seemed only to gain traction. On Fox News, there'd been discussions of my militant anger. The Internet would produce more rumors that a videotape existed of me referring to white people as whitey, which was outlandish and just plainly untrue. In June, when Barack finally clinched the Democratic nomination, I'd greet him with a playful fist bump on stage at an event in Minnesota, which would then make headlines interpreted by one Fox commentator as a terrorist fist jab, again suggesting that we were dangerous. A news chiron on the same network had referred to me as Obama's baby mama, conjuring cliched notions of black ghetto America, implying an otherness that put me outside even my own marriage. I was getting worn out, not physically, but emotionally. The punches hurt, even if I understood that they had little to do with who I really was as a person. It was as if there were some cartoon version of me out there wreaking havoc. A woman I kept hearing about but didn't know. A too tall, too forceful, ready to emasculate Godzilla of a political wife named Michelle Obama. Painfully, too, my friends would sometimes call and unload their worries on me, heaping me with advice they thought I should pass on to Barack's campaign manager or wanting me to reassure them after they'd heard a negative news report about me or Barack or the state of the campaign. When rumors about the so-called Whitey tape surfaced, a friend who knows me well called up, clearly worried that the lie was true. I had to spend a good 30 minutes convincing her that I hadn't turned into a racist, and when the conversation ended, I hung up thoroughly demoralized. In general. I felt as if I couldn't win, 
that no amount of faith or hard work would push me past my detractors and their attempts to invalidate me. I was female, black, and strong, which to certain people, maintaining a certain mindset, translated only to angry. It was another damaging cliché, one that's been forever used to sweep minority women to the perimeter of every room, an unconscious signal not to listen to what we've got to say. I was now starting to actually feel a bit angry, which then made me feel worse, as if I were fulfilling some prophecy laid out for me by the haters, as if I'd given in. It's remarkable how a stereotype functions as an actual trap. How many angry black women have been caught in the circular logic of that phrase? When you aren't being listened to, why wouldn't you get louder? If you're written off as angry or emotional, doesn't that just cost more of the same? I was exhausted by the meanness, thrown off by how personal it had become and feeling too as if there was no way I could quit. Sometime in May, the Tennessee Republican Party released an online video replaying my remarks in Wisconsin against clips of voters saying things like, Boy, I've been proud to be an American since I was a kid. NPR's website carried a story with the headline, Is Michelle Obama an asset or a liability? Below it, in boldface, came what were apparently points of debate about me, refreshingly honest or too direct, and her looks, regal or intimidating. I'm telling you, this stuff hurt. I sometimes blamed Barack's campaign for the position I was in. I understood that I was more active than many candidate spouses, which made me more of a target for attacks. My instinct was to hit back, to speak up against the lies and unfair generalizations, or to have Barack make some comment. But his campaign team kept telling me it was better not to respond, to march forward and simply take the hits. This is just politics, was always the mantra, as if we could do nothing about it, as if we'd all move to a new city on a new planet called politics, where none of the normal rules applied. Anytime my spirits started to dip, I'd punish myself further with a slew of disparaging thoughts. I hadn't chosen this. I'd never liked politics. I'd left my job and given my identity over to this campaign, and now I was a liability? Where had my power gone? Sitting in our kitchen in Chicago on a Sunday evening when Barack was home for a one-night stopover, I'd let all my frustrations pour out. I don't need to do this, I told him. If I'm hurting the campaign, why on earth am I out there? I explained that Melissa, Katie, and I were feeling overmatched by the volume of media requests and the work it took to travel on the tight budget we were on. I didn't want to foul anything up, and I wanted to be supportive. But we lacked the time and resources to do any more than react to the moment at hand. And when it came to the mounting scrutiny of me, I was tired of being defenseless tired of being seen as someone altogether different from the person I was. I can stay home and be with the kids if that's better, I told Barack. I'll just be a regular wife who shows up only at the big events and smiles. Maybe that'd be a lot easier on everybody.
Barack listened sympathetically. I could tell he was tired, eager to head upstairs and get some needed sleep. I hated sometimes how the lines had blurred between family life and political life for us. His days were filled with split-second problem-solving and hundreds of interactions. I didn't want to be another issue he needed to contend with. But then again, my existence had been fully folded into his. You're so much more of an asset than a liability, Michelle. You have to know that, he said, looking stricken. But if you want to stop or slow down, I completely understand. You can do whatever you want here. He told me I should never feel beholden to him or to the machinery of the campaign. And if I wanted to keep going but needed more support and resources to do it, he'd figure out how to get them. I was comforted by this, though only a little. I still felt like the first grader in the lunch line who'd just been walloped. But with this, we dropped the politics and took our weary selves to bed. Not long after that, I went to David Axelrod's office in Chicago and sat down with him and Valerie to watch video of some of my public appearances. It was, I realize now, something of an intervention, an attempt to show me which small parts of this process I could control. The two of them praised me for how hard I'd been working and how effectively I was able to rally Barack's supporters. But then Axe muted the volume as he replayed my stump speech, removing my voice so that we could look more closely at my body language, specifically my facial expressions. What did I see? I saw myself speaking with intensity and conviction and never letting up. I always addressed the tough times many Americans were facing, as well as the inequities within our schools and our healthcare system. My face reflected the seriousness of what I believed was at stake, how important the choice that lay before our nation really was. But it was too serious, too severe, at least given what people were conditioned to expect from a woman. I saw my expression as a stranger might perceive it, especially if it was framed with an unflattering message. I could see how the opposition had managed to dice up these images and feed me to the public as some sort of pissed-off harpy. It was, of course, another stereotype, another trap. The easiest way to disregard a woman's voice is to package her as a scold. No one seemed to criticize Barack for appearing too serious or not smiling enough. I was a wife and not a candidate, obviously, so perhaps the expectation was for me to provide more lightness, more fluff. And yet, if there was any question about how women in general fared on planet politics, one needed only to look at how Nancy Pelosi, the smart and hard-driving speaker of the House of Representatives, was often depicted as a shrew, or what Hillary Clinton was enduring as cable pundits and opinion writers hashed and rehashed each development in the campaign. Hillary's gender was used against her relentlessly, drawing from all the worst stereotypes. She was called domineering, a nag, a bitch. Her voice was interpreted as screechy 
her laugh as a cackle. Hillary was Barack's opponent, which meant that I wasn't inclined to feel especially warm toward her just then, but I couldn't help but admire her ability to stand up and keep fighting amid the misogyny. Reviewing videotape with Axe and Valerie that day, I felt tears pricking at my eyes. I was upset. I could see now that there was a performative piece to politics that I hadn't yet fully mastered. And I'd been out there giving speeches already for more than a year. I'd communicated best, I realize now, in smaller venues like the ones I'd done in Iowa. It was harder to convey warmth in larger auditoriums. Bigger crowds required clearer facial cues, which was something I needed to work on. I was worried now that it was almost too late. Valerie, my dear friend of more than 15 years, reached out to squeeze my hand. Why didn't you guys talk to me about this sooner, I asked. Why didn't anyone try to help? The answer was that no one had been paying all that much attention. The perception inside Barack's campaign seemed to be that I was doing fine until I wasn't. Only now, when I was a problem, was I summoned to Axe's office. For me, this was a turnaround point. The campaign apparatus existed exclusively to serve the candidate, not the spouse or the family. And as much as Barack's staffers respected me and valued my contribution, they'd never given me much in the way of guidance. Until that point, no one from the campaign had bothered to travel with me or show up for my events. I'd never received media training or speech prep. No one, I realized, was going to look out for me unless I pushed for it knowing that the gaze was only going to intensify as we moved into the last six or so months of the campaign, we agreed finally that I needed real help. If I was going to continue to campaign like a candidate, I needed to be supported like a candidate. I'd protect myself by being better organized, by insisting on having the resources I needed to do the job well. In the final weeks of the primaries, Barack's campaign began expanding my team to include a scheduler and a personal aide. Kristen Jarvis, a warm-hearted former staffer from Barack's U.S. Senate office, whose steady demeanor would keep me grounded in high-stress moments, plus a no-nonsense, politically savvy communications specialist named Stephanie Cutter. Working with Katie and Melissa, Stephanie helped me sharpen my message and my presentation, building toward a major speech I delivered late that summer at the Democratic National Convention. We were also finally granted access to a campaign plane, which allowed me to move more efficiently. I could now give media interviews during flights, get my hair and makeup done en route to an event, or bring Sasha and Malia along with me at no extra cost. It was a relief. All of it was a relief. And I do think that it allowed me to smile more, to feel less on guard. As we planned my public appearances, Stephanie counseled me to play to my strengths and to remember the things I most enjoyed talking about, which was my love for my husband and kids, 
my connection with working mothers, and my proud Chicago roots. She recognized that I liked to joke around and told me not to hold back with my humor. It was okay, in other words, to be myself. Shortly after the primaries wrapped up, I signed on to co-host The View, spending a happy and spirited hour with Whoopi Goldberg, Barbara Walters, and the other hosts in front of a live audience, talking about the attacks against me, but also laughing about the girls and the fist bumps and the nuisance of pantyhose. I felt a new ease, a new ownership of my voice. The show aired to generally positive commentary. I'd worn a $148 black and white dress that women were suddenly scrambling to buy. I was having an impact and beginning to enjoy myself at the same time, feeling more and more open and optimistic. I also was trying to learn from the Americans I was meeting around the country, holding roundtables designed to focus on work-family balance an issue in which I had a keen interest. For me, the most humbling lessons came when I visited military communities and met with soldiers' spouses, groups of mostly women, though sometimes with a few men mixed in. Tell me about your lives, I'd say. And then I'd listen, as women with babies on their laps, some of them still teenagers themselves, told me stories. Some described being transferred between bases eight or more times in as many years, in each instance needing to start over and settling their children into things like music lessons or enrichment programs. They explained, too, how difficult it could be to maintain a career over the course of all those moves. A teacher, for instance, wasn't able to find a job because her new state didn't recognize the old state's teaching certificate. Nail technicians and physical therapists faced similar problems with licensing. Many young parents had trouble finding affordable child care. All of it, of course, was shaded by the logistical and emotional burdens of having a loved one deployed for 12 months or more at a time to a place like Kabul or Mosul or on an aircraft carrier in the South China Sea. Meeting these spouses instantly put whatever hurt I was feeling into perspective. Their sacrifices were far greater than mine. I sat in these meetings, engrossed and somewhat taken aback by the fact that I knew so little about military life. I vowed to myself that if Barack was fortunate enough to be elected, I'd find some way to better support these families. All of this left me more energized to help make the final push for Barack and Joe Biden, the affable senator from Delaware who'd soon be announced as his running mate. I felt emboldened to follow my instincts again, surrounded by people who had my back. At public events, I focused on making personal connections with the people I met, in small groups and in crowds of thousands, in backstage chats and harried rope lines. When voters got to see me as a person, they understood that the caricatures were untrue. I've learned that it's harder to hate up close. I would go on to spend the summer of 2008 moving faster and working harder,
convinced that I could make a positive difference for Barack. With the convention drawing close, I worked with a speechwriter for the first time, a gifted young woman named Sarah Hurwitz, who helped shape my ideas into a tight 17-minute speech. After weeks of careful preparation, I walked on stage at the Pepsi Center in Denver in late August and stood before an audience of some 20,000 people and a TV audience of millions more, ready to articulate to the world who I really was. That night, my brother Craig introduced me. My mother sat in the front row of a skybox, looking a little stunned by how giant the platform for our lives had become. I spoke of my father, his humility, his resilience, and how all that had shaped me and Craig. I tried to give Americans the most intimate view possible of Barack and his noble heart. When I finished, people applauded and applauded, and I felt a powerful blast of relief, knowing that maybe I'd done something finally to change people's perception of me. It was a big moment for sure, grand and public, and to this day, readily findable on YouTube. But the truth is, for those exact reasons, it was also strangely kind of a small moment. My view of things was starting to reverse itself, like a sweater slowly being turned inside out. Stages, audiences, lights, applause. These were becoming more normal than I'd ever thought they could be. What I lived for now were the unrehearsed, unphotographed, in-between moments where nobody was performing and no one was judging and real surprise was still possible. Where sometimes, without warning, you might feel a tiny latch spring open on your heart. For this, we need to go back to Butte, Montana on the 4th of July. It was the end of our day there, the summer sun finally dropping behind the western mountains, the sound of firecrackers beginning to pop in the distance. We were holing up for the night at a Holiday Inn Express next to the interstate, with Barack leaving for Missouri the next day, and the girls and I headed home to Chicago. We were tired, all of us. We'd done the parade and the picnic, We'd engaged with what felt like every last resident in the town of Butte. And now, finally, we were going to have a little gathering just for Malia. If you asked me at the time, I'd have said that we came up short for her in the end, that her birthday felt like an afterthought in the maelstrom of the campaign. We got together in a fluorescent-lit, low-ceiling conference room in the basement of the hotel with Conrad, Maya, and Suhela, plus a handful of staffers who were close with Malia, and of course the Secret Service agents, who were always close no matter what. We had some balloons, a grocery store cake, tin candles, and a tub of ice cream. There were a few gifts bought and wrapped on the fly by someone who was not me. The mood was not exactly desultory, but it wasn't festive either. It had simply been too long of a day. Barack and I shared a dark look, knowing we'd failed. 
Ultimately, though, like so many things, it was a matter of perception, how we decided to look at what was in front of us. Barack and I were focused only on our faults and insufficiencies, seeing them reflected in that drab room and thrown-together party. But Malia was looking for something different, and she saw it. She saw kind faces, people who loved her, a thickly frosted cake, a little sister and cousin by her side, a new year ahead. She'd spent the day outdoors. She'd seen a parade. Tomorrow, there would be an airplane ride. She marched over to where Barack sat and threw herself into his lap. This, she declared, is the best birthday ever. She didn't notice that both her mom and her dad got teary, or that half the people in the room were now choked up as well, because she was right. And suddenly we all saw it. She was 10 years old that day, and everything was the best. 18. Four months later, on November 4, 2008, I cast my vote for Barack. The two of us went early that morning to our polling place, which was in the gym at Beulah Shoesmith Elementary School, just a few blocks away from our house in Chicago. We brought Sasha and Malia along, both of them dressed and ready for school. Even on election day, maybe especially on election day, I thought school would be a good idea. School was routine. School was comfort. As we walked past banks of photographers and TV cameras to get into the gym, as people around us talked about the historic nature of everything, I was happy to have the lunchboxes packed. What kind of day would this be? It would be a long day. Beyond that, none of us knew. Barack, as he always is on high-pressure days, was more easygoing than ever. He greeted the poll workers, picked up his ballot, and shook hands with anyone he encountered, appearing relaxed. It made sense, I guess. This whole endeavor was about to be out of his hands. We stood shoulder to shoulder at our voting stations while the girls leaned in closely to watch what each of us was doing. I'd voted for Barack many times before, in primaries and general elections, in state-level and national races, and this trip to the polls felt no different. Voting for me was a habit, a healthy ritual to be done conscientiously and at every opportunity. My parents had taken me to the polls as a kid, and I'd made a practice of bringing Sasha and Malia with me any time I could, hoping to reinforce both the ease and the importance of the act. My husband's career had allowed me to witness the machinations of politics and power up close. I'd seen how just a handful of votes in every precinct could mean the difference not just between one candidate and another, but between one value system and the next. If a few people stayed home in each neighborhood, it could determine what our kids learned in schools, which health care options we had available or whether or not we sent our troops to war. Voting was both simple and incredibly effective. 
That day, I stared for a few extra seconds at the little oblong bubble next to my husband's name for President of the United States. After almost 21 months of campaigning, attacks, and exhaustion, this was it. The last thing I needed to do. Barack glanced my way and laughed. You still trying to make up your mind, he said? Need a little more time? Were it not for the anxiety, an election day might qualify as a kind of mini-vacation, a surreal pause between everything that's happened and whatever lies ahead. You've leaped, but you haven't landed. You can't know yet how the future is going to feel. After months of everything going too fast, time slows to an agonizing crawl. Back home, I played hostess to family and friends who stopped by our house to make small talk and help pass the hours. At some point that morning, Barack went off to play basketball with Craig and some friends at a nearby gym, which had become a kind of election day custom. Barack loved nothing more than a strenuous thrash or bethrash game of basketball to settle his nerves. Just don't let anyone break his nose, I said to Craig as the two of them walked out the door. He's got to be on TV later, you know. Way to make me responsible for everything, Craig said back, as only a brother can. And then they were gone. If you believe the polls, it appeared that Barack was poised to win. But I also knew he'd been working on two possible speeches for the night ahead. One for a victory and another for a concession. By now, we understood enough about politics and polling to take nothing for granted. We knew of the phenomenon called the Bradley Effect, named for an African-American candidate, Tom Bradley, who'd run for governor in California in the early 1980s. While the polls had consistently shown Bradley leading, he'd lost on Election Day, surprising everyone and supplying the world with a bigger lesson about bigotry as the pattern repeated itself for years to come in different high-profile races involving black candidates around the country. The theory was that when it came to minority candidates, voters often hid their prejudice from pollsters, expressing it only from the privacy of the voting booth. Throughout the campaign, I'd ask myself over and over whether America was really ready to elect a black president whether the country was in a strong enough place to see beyond race and move past prejudice. Finally, we were about to find out. As a whole, the general election had been less grueling than the pitched battle of the primaries. John McCain had done himself no favors by choosing Alaska's governor, Sarah Palin, as his running mate. Inexperienced and unprepared, she'd quickly become a national punchline. And then, in mid-September, the news had turned disastrous. The U.S. economy began to spiral out of control when Lehman Brothers, one of the country's largest investment banks, abruptly went belly up. The titans of Wall Street, the world now realized, had spent years racking up profits on the backs of junk home loans. Stocks plummeted. Credit markets froze. Retirement funds vanished. Barack was the right person for this moment in history, for a job that was never going to be easy, 
but that had grown, thanks to the financial crisis, exponentially more difficult. I'd been trumpeting it for more than a year and a half now, all over America. My husband was calm and prepared. Complexity didn't scare him. He had a brain capable of sorting through every intricacy. I was biased, of course, and personally, I still would have been content to lose the election and reclaim some version of our old lives. But I also was feeling that as a country, we truly needed his help. It was time to stop thinking about something as arbitrary as skin color. We'd be foolish at this point not to put him in office. Still, he would inherit a mess. As evening drew closer, I felt my fingers getting numb, a nervous tingle running through my body. I couldn't really eat. I lost interest in making small talk with my mom or the friends who'd stopped by. At some point, I went upstairs just to catch a moment to myself. Barack, it turned out, had retreated up there as well, clearly needing a moment of his own. I found him sitting at his desk, looking over the text of his victory speech in the little book-strewn office adjacent to our bedroom, his hole. I walked over and began rubbing his shoulders. You doing okay, I said. Yep. Tired? Nope. He smiled up at me as if trying to prove it was true. Only a day earlier, we'd received news that Toot, Barack's 86-year-old grandmother, had passed away in Hawaii after being sick for months with cancer. Knowing he'd missed saying goodbye to his mother, Barack had made a point of seeing Toot. We'd taken the kids to visit her late that summer, and he'd gone again on his own ten days earlier stepping off the campaign trail for a day to sit and hold her hand. It occurred to me what a sad thing this was. Barack had lost his mother at the very genesis of his political career, two months after announcing his run for state senate. Now, as he reached its apex, his grandmother wouldn't be around to witness it. The people who'd raised him were gone. I'm proud of you no matter what happens, I said. You've done so much good. He lifted himself out of his seat and put his arms around me. So have you, he said, pulling me close. We've both done all right. All I could think about was everything he still had to carry. After a family dinner at home, We got dressed up and rode downtown to watch election returns with a small group of friends and family in a suite the campaign had rented for us at the Hyatt Regency. The campaign staff had cloistered itself in a different area of the hotel, trying to give us some privacy. Joe and Jill Biden had their own suite for friends and family across the hall. The first results came in around 6 p.m. Central Time, with Kentucky going for McCain and Vermont for Barack. Then West Virginia went for McCain, and after that, so did South Carolina. My confidence lurched a little bit, though none of this was a surprise. According to Axe and Pluff, who were buzzing in and out of the room, announcing what felt like every sliver of information they received, everything was unfolding as predicted. Though the updates were generally positive, 
The political chatter was the last thing I wanted to hear. We had no control over anything anyway, so what was the point? We'd leaped, and now, one way or another, we'd land. We could see on TV that thousands of people were already amassing at Grant Park, a mile or so away on the lakefront, where election coverage was being broadcast on jumbotron screens and where Barack would later show up to deliver one of his two speeches. There were police officers stationed on practically every corner, Coast Guard boats patrolling the lake, helicopters overhead. All of Chicago, it seemed, was holding its breath, waiting for news. Connecticut went for Barack. Then New Hampshire went for Barack. So did Massachusetts, Maine, Delaware, and D.C. When Illinois was called for Barack, we could hear cars honking and shouts of excitement from the streets below. I found a chair near the door to the suite and sat alone, surveying the scene in front of me. The room had gone mostly quiet now, the political team's nervous updates having given way to an expectant, almost sober kind of calm. To my right, the girls sat in their red and black dresses on a couch, and to my left, Barack, his suit coat draped elsewhere in the room, had taken a seat on another couch next to my mother, who was dressed that evening in an elegant black suit and silver earrings. Are you ready for this, Grandma? I heard Barack say to her. Never one to over-emote, my mom just gave him a sideways look and a shrug, causing them both to smile. Later, though, she described to me how overcome she'd felt right then struck just as I'd been by his vulnerability. America had come to see Barack as self-assured and powerful, but my mother also recognized the gravity of the passage, the loneliness of the job ahead. Here was this man who no longer had a father or a mother about to be elected the leader of the free world. The next time I looked over, I saw that she and Barack were holding hands. It was exactly 10 o'clock when the networks began to flash pictures of my smiling husband declaring that Barack Hussein Obama would become the 44th president of the United States. We all leaped to our feet and started instinctively to yell. Our campaign staff streamed into the room, as did the Bidens, everyone hurling themselves from one hug to the next. It was surreal. I felt as if I'd been lifted out of my own body, only watching myself react. He had done it. We'd all done it. It hardly seemed possible, but the victory was sound. Here is where I felt like our family got launched out of a cannon and into some strange underwater universe. Things felt slow and aqueous and slightly distorted. Even if we were moving quickly and with precise guidance, waved by Secret Service agents into a freight elevator, hustled out a back exit at the hotel and into a waiting SUV. Did I breathe the air as we stepped outside? Did I thank the person who held open the door as we passed by? Was I smiling? I don't know.
It was as if I were trying to frog kick my way back to reality. Some of this, I assumed, had to be fatigue. It had been, as predicted, a very long day. I could see the grogginess in the girls' faces. I'd prepared them for this next part of the night, explaining that whether dad won or lost, we were going to have a big, noisy celebration in a park. We were gliding now in a police escorted motorcade along Lakeshore Drive, speeding south toward Grant Park. I travel the same road hundreds of times in my life, from my bus rides home from Whitney Young to the pre dawn drives to the gym. This was my city, as familiar to me as a place could be. And yet that night it felt different, transformed into something strangely quiet. It was as if we were suspended in time and space, a little like a dream. Malia had been peering out the window of the SUV, taking it all in. Daddy, she said, sounding almost apologetic. There's no one on the road. I don't think anyone's coming to your celebration. Barack and I looked at each other and started to laugh. It was then that we realized that ours were the only cars on the street. Barack was now president elect. The Secret Service had cleared everything out, shutting down an entire section of Lakeshore Drive, blocking every intersection along the route. A standard precaution for a president, we'd soon learn. But for us, it was new. Everything was new. I put my arm around Malia. The people are already there, sweetie, I said. Don't worry, they're waiting for us. And they were. More than 200,000 people had crammed into the park to see us. We could hear an expectant hum as we exited the vehicles and were ushered into a set of white tents that had been put up at the front of the park, forming a tunnel that led to the stage. A group of friends and family had gathered there to greet us, only now, due to Secret Service protocol, they were cordoned off behind a rope. Barack put his arm around me, almost as if to make sure I was still there. We walked out onto the stage a few minutes later, the four of us, me holding Malia's hand and Barack holding Sasha's. I saw a lot of things at once. I saw that a wall of thick, bulletproof glass had been erected around the stage. I saw an ocean of people, many of them waving little American flags. My brain could process none of it. It all felt too big. I remember little of Barack's speech that night. Sasha, Malia, and I watched him from the wings as he said his words, surrounded by those glass shields, and by our city, and by the comfort of more than 69 million votes. What stays with me is that sense of comfort, the unusual calmness of that unusually warm November night by the lake in Chicago. After so many months of going to high energy campaign rallies with crowds deliberately whipped up into a shouting, chanting frenzy, the atmosphere in Grant Park was different. We were standing before a giant, jubilant mass of Americans 
who were also palpably reflective. What I heard was relative silence. It seemed almost as if I could make out every face in the crowd. There were tears in many eyes. Maybe the calmness was something I imagined. Or maybe for all of us, it was just a product of the late hour. It was almost midnight, after all. And everyone had been waiting. We'd been waiting a long, long time. Becoming more. Nineteen. There is no handbook for incoming First Ladies of the United States. It's not technically a job, nor is it an official government title. It comes with no salary and no spelled out set of obligations. It's a strange kind of sidecar to the presidency, a seat that by the time I came to it had already been occupied by more than 43 different women, each of whom had done it in her own way. I knew only a little about previous first ladies and how they'd approached the position. I knew that Jackie Kennedy had dedicated herself to redecorating the White House. I recall that Rosalind Carter had sat in on cabinet meetings. Nancy Reagan had gotten into some trouble accepting free designer dresses. And Hillary Clinton had been derided for taking on a policy role in her husband's administration. Once a couple of years earlier, at a luncheon for U.S. Senate spouses, I watched, half in shock, half in awe, as Laura Bush posed, serene and smiling, for ceremonial photos with about a hundred different people, never once losing her composure or needing a break. First ladies showed up in the news having tea with spouses of foreign dignitaries. They sent out official greetings on holidays and wore pretty gowns to state dinners. I knew that they normally picked a cause or two to champion as well. I understood already that I'd be measured by a different yardstick. As the only African-American first lady to set foot in the White House, I was other almost by default. If there was a presumed grace assigned to my white predecessors, I knew it wasn't likely to be the same for me. I learned through the campaign stumbles that I had to be better, faster, smarter, and stronger than ever. My grace would need to be earned. I worried that many Americans wouldn't see themselves reflected in me or that they wouldn't relate to my journey. I wouldn't have the luxury of settling in to my new role slowly before being judged. And when it came to judgment, I was as vulnerable as ever to the unfounded fears and racial stereotypes that lay just beneath the surface of the public consciousness, ready to be stirred up by rumor and innuendo. I was humbled and excited to be First Lady, but not for one second did I think I'd be sliding into some glamorous easy role. Nobody who has the words first and black attached to them ever would. I stood at the foot of the mountain, knowing I'd need to climb my way into favor. For me, it revived an old internal call and response, one that tracked all the way back to high school 
when I'd shown up at Winnie Young and found myself suddenly gripped by doubt. Confidence, I'd learned then, sometimes needs to be called from within. I've repeated the same words to myself many times now, through many climbs. Am I good enough? Yes, I am. The 76 days between election and inauguration felt like a critical time to start setting the tone for the kind of first lady I wanted to be. After all I'd done to lever myself out of corporate law and into more meaningful community-minded work, I knew I'd be happiest if I could engage actively and work toward achieving measurable results. I intended to make good on the promises I'd made to the military spouses I'd met while campaigning, to help share their stories and find ways to support them. And then there were my ideas for planting a garden and looking to improve children's health and nutrition on a larger scale. I didn't want to go about any of it casually. I intended to arrive at the White House with a carefully thought-out strategy and a strong team backing me. If I'd learned anything from the ugliness of the campaign, from the myriad ways people had sought to write me off as angry or unbecoming, it was that public judgment sweeps in to fill any void. If you don't get out there and define yourself, you'll be quickly and inaccurately defined by others. I wasn't interested in slotting myself into a passive role, waiting for Barack's team to give me direction. After coming through the crucible of the last year, I knew that I would never allow myself to get that banged up again.